ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I have some big news concerning the podcast. I'm pleased to announce that the SRB podcast is now sponsored by the Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. This is an important step for the project because it demonstrates that not only am I doing something right, but that institutions like Reese see value in the podcast and its mission to provide the public with greater knowledge about Eurasia's past and present. This, of course, doesn't mean you should stop supporting the SRB podcast with monthly contributions. So go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Patreon button and become a monthly patron. It doesn't take much. $5 a month is very little in the big scheme of things. But I also want to say that the SRB podcast isn't alone. There are several other new podcasts out there concerning Russia, like She's in Russia, the Russia House podcast, and Everyone Hates Moscow. They also need your attention and support, so I urge you to check them out as well. The Maidan protests ignited street activism across Ukraine's political spectrum. But while we hear a lot about Ukrainian civil society more broadly, we don't hear much about the political tendencies that inhabit it, except for perhaps its nationalist and right-wing elements. But though less in number, there were leftists, particularly and particularly for today's topic, feminists, active before, during, and after the Maidan. So what is feminism in Ukraine, and how did feminist activists participate and respond to the mass protests? I turn to Emily Chanel Justice for some answers. Emily Chanel Justice is a postdoctoral fellow at the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies at Miami University. Her research focuses on left-wing and student activism in Ukraine, particularly during the Maidan protests of 2013 and 2014. Her most recent article is, We're Not Just Sandwiches, Europe, Nation, and Feminist Impossibilities on Ukraine's Maidan, published in the spring 2017 issue of Signs. Here's Emily Chanel Justice. So I thought we'd start our conversation today to have you talk a bit about your overall research project on, on feminism and left-wing activism in Ukraine. So um, what is what are you working on What is your and what is your experience in doing the feed, field work for it, especially since you were there during the Maidan? So I actually started research on this project in 2012, um, which was over a year before Maidan started, and I had gotten interested in student activism in Ukraine a little bit before that. Um, I was connected with a pretty active member of one of the independent student unions for a long time. We met in high school, um, and I had started in 2012, uh, you know, visiting some student organizing events, some protests, um, a student organizing camp in Crimea, and this got me really interested in what different student activists were doing and feminism was an important and kind of growing part of that. Um, not all the student activists were feminists, but there were a lot of fairly active feminist activists that were part of that circle of independent student union activists. 
who were focused largely on higher education activism, um, you know, sort of rethinking some of the higher education reform that was happening under Yushchenko and with Timoshenko as prime minister. Um, and so my intention originally for my research was to study the student movement. Uh, and I had started out by working with these left politically oriented student groups. And initially I intended to study the way that they sometimes made compromises with right-wing student organizations, some of the differences in different types of student organizing. Um, and, and really originally this research was supposed to be a very broad picture of what contemporary student activism looks like in Ukraine. Um, I got to Ukraine in September of 2013, and of course, two months later, the first protest on Maidan happened. And I was really lucky to have already been spending time with activists by then, because I basically ended up tossing my research framework out the window and following them around Maidan, um, which was challenging in terms of research, because I had no way of really evaluating how, how my research was going. Um, all of the questions that I had thought were important suddenly became completely irrelevant. Um, but I had this great network of people who were really tapped into different elements of Maidan and kind of kept me uh, up to date on what was going on. I sometimes got phone calls like, hey, Emily, this is happening. You should really be here. Or, you know, I had a, I had a pretty good camera. And so a lot of times people would say, I'll bring your camera so we can take pictures of this thing. Um, there were a lot of different ways that the activists I was working with just sort of, uh, I'm not sure if I would say integrated me into the protest, but they knew I was around. They, they knew what my research project was about and they wanted to make it as good as it could be. So they really helped me a lot with that and occasionally told me, uh, maybe you should stay home for this one. Um, if they, if they were really unsure of what was going to happen. So, um, all of those things together made it, overall, I would say a, a positive research experience, even though at the time uh, it was really uncertain of you know anything that was going to happen or whether I would even be able to have any data to analyze at the end of it. Let me ask you something about work uh, being around a lot of these activists and, and they knowing you know what you're doing, the research you're doing. And I always wonder about this for anthropologists because you know, as a trained historian, I only deal with mostly dead people. So, how did what did they think of you coming into their milieu um, and and basically them being a subject of your research? That's a good question. Um, people had fairly different responses. I mean, some of them thought it was the greatest novelty they had ever heard of, and would go around being like, "Oh my gosh, can you believe that she's studying us? That's hilarious." Um, some of them really kind of challenged me and they were, they would ask questions like, you know, there's, there's 30 active members of this organization. I would say that there's more, um, but you know, they would give me a really low number and say, how can you really want to study us? We don't matter. Um, and that was hard to answer, but also that was part of the point, um, was that they never got attention and people wrote them off as not doing anything substantial, whereas I saw what they were doing were actually fairly significant criticisms of mainstream politics. Um, so I feel like there were a lot of different uh, responses and some people just sort of took it in stride like, okay, cool. Yeah. Hang out with me, whatever. <laughs> and then there were some people that I got to be actually very, very close friends with, um, which I think is probably common in most 
in most kind of participant observation field work settings. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard to how could you space, you know, maintain this myth of the objective researcher observer when you form human relationships with people. Precisely. And especially when you're in really un, you know, un, uncontrollable context of upheaval, you you have situations where, you know, people are are like uh, do you need to leave the country? Can I give you a ride to the airport? You know, that's <laughs> just happens. <laughs> now, you, you spent a lot of time with the Ukrainian feminist activists. And, and this is always a really interesting issue. Because when, you know, we, or I'll just speak for myself, when when I hear the word feminist or feminism, my I immediately imagine um, an ideology and an activist out of my own kind of context, which is the United States, right? What feminism means here and the history of the feminist movement in the United States. So what what is a feminist in Ukraine? What are, What is their ideas of feminism? Uh, and how does it apply and shape by the Ukrainian context? Well, I think um, it's important to think of Ukrainian feminism as just as diverse as feminism anywhere else. There's feminists who are committed to... Um, legislation that encodes equal rights in terms of sex and gender. There's radical feminists who are unwilling to work within any confines of legal frameworks. Um, and there are feminists who focus on the same kinds of issues that we focus on uh, in the US and, and certainly all over the world. Um, and that was, I think, one of the surprising and exciting things about working with Ukrainian feminists is that they there were feminists who were just as tapped into contemporary feminist theory as I was, and others who were like, I just think the patriarchy sucks. So those two, it was really about finding a common ground between those two groups. And there was actually a fair amount of conflict between people who wanted to focus on, you know, creating a feminist academy and a feminist space for thinking about um, what a feminist critique does. And then there's other people who are really focused on being in the streets and saying, the way to make Ukrainians care about feminism is by putting it in their face and, and showing them how it's relevant to them on that level. And I ended up working more with the latter kind of group, um, partly because of circumstance. We were in the streets anyway. Um, but that's kind of more of the people I ended up speaking to were those sort of people who had found ways that feminism was relevant to their daily lives and wanted to find ways to translate that into um, for people who in Ukraine who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves feminists or who might shy away from the term of feminism in the first place. Right. So did you, do you feel that it was this, uh, I mean, a lack of a better concept here, but is this, this constant problem of activism, political activism, and that is how do you deal with the issues of theory and practice? And, and do you feel that the, the, the people you ended up being around in, 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 in experiencing, um, activism with, did they, did you feel that they had more practical concerns that are more communicatable to Ukrainian politics? Well, I, yeah, I guess I do think to some extent it is a question of kind of theory and practice and which is the best way to um, come up with a kind of feminism that's relevant to Ukrainians outside of activists um, and that's actually approachable for people. Um, and I mean... I think, again, there's diversity within the kinds of feminists who focus on practice over theory because there's some who are really committed to radical um, appropriation of feminist ideas and 
they're those people are not necessarily looking to gain sympathy and there's other feminists who want to go into the streets to find other people who might actually be more like them than they think they are and if they're careful about their language and they don't go around telling everyone you should really be a feminist but they say like do you sometimes feel like you know you're limited in what you can do because you're a woman me too let's talk about why that is let's talk about the structures that make that happen you know let's try to figure out ways that we can work together to get beyond that those kind of practical feminists are really thinking about um how to make more people sympathetic to feminism even as they also have other concerns like economic stability and you know ukraine's territorial integrity so um i, I don't honestly know which is more successful or, or more useful i do think that having all of these different voices contributes to actually a very vibrant feminist discourse in Ukraine that, um, you know, isn't always really recognized. Um, there's also in this summer, I um, discovered this feminist workshop in Lviv in Western Ukraine um, that focuses a little bit more on education. And they do a lot of workshops for the community. Like I went to a workshop on making um, a, a reusable tote bag. Um, that is, you know, not necessarily a feminist act, but it's about making the name feminism become part of this discourse about community organizing, um, helping, you know, skill sharing, helping one another learn to learn to, I don't know, um, be self-sufficient. I mean, any of these concepts aren't, aren't inherently feminist, but if you associate them with a feminist organization, um, then people start thinking about how feminism is part of their daily lives instead of this theoretical academic framework that is not actually accessible to a lot of people. Yeah, th I mean, this speaks to one of the issues you brought out in your article in Signs, and that is, you know, how do Ukrainian feminists translate feminism into, uh, the, into their context? Because as you write, um, Ukrainian women who use the word feminist to describe themselves are taking a calculated risk because their work is considered both irrelevant and dangerous to Ukraine and Ukrainian unity. Now, I'm curious about the latter part of that, not put aside the irrelevant question, but I was struck by it being dangerous to Ukraine and Ukrainian Ukrainian unity. What what is what is that all about? Yeah, there's a, a really long history of women's activism in Ukraine. And one of the main organizing themes of that whole history is how women's organizations organize at the same time that Ukraine is trying to demand independent nationhood. Um, and to some extent, there's an understanding that's fairly widespread that if women prioritize their issues that are gender-based, then they can't possibly prioritize the Ukrainian nation. And there's also a sense that if women have the freedoms that theoretically come along with feminism, then they will no longer be contributing to the reproduction of the nation in terms of creating families and family structures and, you know, um, making sure that the longevity of Ukraine is ensured. So I would say it's dangerous in both of those ways or understood as dangerous in both of those ways, because a feminist act activist group um, is suggesting that that women's rights are more important than national rights or national priorities. Um, that's a very contentious position to be in in Ukraine. And it's a very, I would say, unresolved conversation as to whether those two things can really be reconciled. Um, 
I don't know a lot of Ukrainian women who really have reconciled um, how to balance feminism and nationalism. That's an ongoing question, although it's probably not unique to the Ukrainian context if we if we look around. Yeah, yeah. certainly, certainly. But this also kind of speaks to another issue that you you um, you point to, and that is that one of the main themes of the Maidan protest was about this concept of Europeanness or Ukraine becoming part of Europe. And part of the, you know, imaginings of Europe is certainly women's rights, women's liberation is certainly part of that imagining of Europe, I think, to some extent. Um, so, so what did Europe mean? And how did it jive with this issue of Ukrainian nationhood? I have yet to answer this question adequately for myself or anyone else. Um, I think, you know, the in the context of Maidan, to some extent, the only definition of Europe that mattered was that it wasn't Russia. And that's it. Um, that's not that's not necessarily very useful to any kind of analysis. Um, but so many people had completely different ideas about what what Europe meant and what Ukraine becoming European meant. So like you say, for feminists, a lot of this had to do with the actual codification of gender equality that would theoretically be required. Um, for some people, this meant LGBTQ protections and and the uh, legalization of gay marriage, which was, of course, a really contentious issue um, even before Maidan happened. Um, for some people, you know, being Europe was really about access to better economic possibilities, better education possibilities. For some, I think it was simply a status, a recognition that Ukraine is part of this world and not part of that world. Um, but this is something that I think caused problems on Maidan and kind of still causes problems today because people, there was really never a consensus on what kind of Europe people were demanding to be a part of. Um, and for some of the feminist activists that I worked with and, and leftists as well, this was kind of confusing because people, you know, they said, yeah, we want to be part of Europe and, and feminists would say, well, you know, that means more rights for women and leftists would say, you know, that means um, you know, our, our social welfare system has to change and, and this sort of thing. And those kinds of attitudes on Maidan were met with really negative and violent responses because a lot of protesters did not want to hear those criticisms of Europe because they had this image of Europe in their heads of something that had no problems and that would only benefit Ukraine. Um, and now that the reality has set in and Ukraine is to some extent, more recognized as part of Europe than it was, people are seeing the realities of those problems that a lot of leftists and feminists had already recognized, and they're just as disheartened or even, you know, more disappointed than they were before. So this idea that I think there was just a general idea of Europe as a kind of promised land that was easy to get caught up in, but it never had any substance substantive sub sorry substantive promises that went along with that idea and because people couldn't agree on what europe meant they couldn't physically make demands in a unified way which meant that they had to let the government speak for them and uh the government is not necessarily at any point going to take a lot of people's other opinions into account um the question of whether or not this has how this kind of goes together with Ukrainian nationhood, um, I think is a really deep question for the whole future of Europe. You know, 
um, theoretically, some Ukrainians, I think, and, and some Maidan protesters were focused on, you know, if Ukraine becomes part of Europe, then our, our national integrity, our territorial integrity is more secured than it would be otherwise. That has been proven not to be the case. Uh, Ukraine is more part of Europe and its territorial, territorial integrity is definitely under threat. So um, that's something that I think is not remotely resolved. But I think in all of Europe, I mean, the problem of what does a nation state mean anymore is a is a question that the whole European Union is kind of grappling with right now. Right, right, definitely. I mean, this is this does. I mean, it, it, this is why it brings. I mean, Ukrainian nationhood, let alone you know, putting aside Ukrainian nationalism, presents a whole a big contradiction to this idea of Europe as a supranational structure. Precisely, and. Ukraine's focus on nationhood, I think maybe is provoking, I, I can't really say definitively if this is true, but it could, it could be provoking other European countries to think about the ramifications of Ukraine, you know, of Ukraine entering in relationships with Europe on the question of nations as a whole, because Ukraine is definitely focused on nation building as a as a country um and most other countries in europe are not that focused on it because they're not you know in an active conflict with russia um so it's possible that bringing ukraine into the eu is what's going to prompt a rethinking of how europe deals with nation states um because that's what ukraine is dealing with and that's what people's priorities are rightly or wrongly um that that's important the, back to this issue of feminism and its relationship to um, uh, Ukrainian nationhood and also uh, in the Maidan protests, one of the things you note is that there's a really strong masculine and militarist streak. They were, they were clear, key components on the Maidan. And, and how did Ukrainian feminists and, and women more generally kind of navigate this, their resulting marginalization because of these two things? Well, there was a, a really widely documented uh, kind of gender-based hierarchy on Maidan in which um, women were very largely participating behind the scenes in the kitchens um, as these kind of supportive roles. And men were the people in the streets. They were the people protecting the camps. They were the one in military gear. Um, and this is, by a lot of people, I think, seen as a, a fairly natural play of events. Um, but it really bothered a lot of feminists because when um, the riot police first stormed the camp, um, the tent camp on Maidan in December, they would largely not let women participate in defending the camp. And several Ukrainian feminists kind of came out and said, like, this is this is my protest too. This is my country too. And you're telling me that I, I can't defend it because I'm a woman. That's not okay with me. And so um, feminists started to organize around this idea of, of um, women participating in whatever capacity they're best suited to instead of just fulfilling roles that are defined as feminine roles. Um, and I, I mean, I think, you know, this is these kind of gender roles and this kind of military masculinity is something, um, you know, the defender of the nation is a very masculine figure and he protects the, the women and children. And these are, are very common tropes in terms of Ukraine's mythology and a lot of countries' mythology. So what feminists are challenging is not just this single act of 
um, of, of kind of forced servitude. Um, but they're really challenging decades of assumptions about women and what women contribute to society. Now, the kind of result to some extent was the development of these women's brigades in which women organized in military brigade form in the same, in kind of mirror images of what, how men had organized themselves. Um, some of these brigades were oriented toward active military participation, and some of them have fought in um, the Donbass since the end of Maidan. Um, others, like the, the group that I worked with a little bit more, uh, was just sort of more oriented toward giving women a space to use Maidan in a way that elevated them um, more than it had been doing. And so they, they did things like self-defense classes um, and, and really created a kind of women's space that was about not just, you know, making sandwiches for men, but was about like, if we were in a position to need to defend, you know, we want to be in a position to do it. But most of those women were kind of critical of the notion that they should volunteer to be sent to the front. Um, that's, you know, a, a big debate now in terms of Ukrainian feminism are the women who have volunteered to be part of the active military service in the Donbass. Are they actually contributing something to the conversation about feminism or are they just sort of uh, adopting masculine behaviors in order to kind of meet with the expectations of how to participate in society? thus still, still allowing men to dominate the definitions of how to, to participate in society, which is not really uh, a feminist success necessarily. And, and what about students? Something else you, you've paid a lot of attention to. What was their role in the Maidan? And, and what, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these people, there's a lot of overlap. But, yes. but, <laughs> but nonetheless, in terms of students, what was their contribution and, and roles in, in this wave of protest and, and revolution? Yeah, students were really crucial on Maidan um, for a number of reasons, partly because uh, I think the student body population in general in Ukraine is one of the groups that has had more experience with Europe than a lot of other populations. Um, a lot of students have been able to go abroad or might have more access to, to the rest of Europe than other ordinary Ukrainians. Um, and they were some of the first groups to organize well uh, and actually bring out large numbers of bodies in response to the protests. Um, and I think there's a kind of sense of, of students as a, not like a, a unified group necessarily, but as a class of people who is in a position to protest against injustice that is allowed to do so because they're young, because they're they're educated, they're engaged, and that this is kind of a good thing. And when the, the riot police first attack the students, this is when we see that the line has officially been crossed because students are allowed to do this kind of stuff and they do it, you know, it's sort of their obligation as, in that period of their lives to protest against the government when the government is doing something unjust and the idea that that you know somebody's going to crack down on students that's what riles everybody else up um and students actually managed to keep their momentum through february it, it's really remarkable um and these are you know student groups that have been organizing in really really successful ways since the late 2000s so this is already a group of people who knows how to mass mobilize people in very short notice. Um, they have some experiences of, of protests in response to suggested legislative changes in higher education in the late 2000s where they would get word that the, that the Rada was going to 
uh, read one of these pieces of legislation, and within 24 or 48 hours, they would have thousands of people in the street. Um, so this is a group of people who knows how to organize, who knows about peaceful mobilizations, uh, who knows about how to diversify tactics in order to uh, be as as successful as possible, but also kind of as, as adaptive and as relevant as possible in order not to alienate people by using two radical tactics, right? Um, and they had a really interesting balance of people who were from these leftist independent unions who were more inclined to use radical tactics, like the occupation of buildings, um, and people who were just willing to put their body in the street for a day. So you have this kind of combination of, of a, a critical mass of people with thinking creatively about tactics that I think made students a really crucial um, factor, not just in terms of making the protests a success, but in also kind of, you know, legitimizing them when you start to have violence, that if you, if you're an international body and, and you're observing these, you know, mass uprisings and, and violence and all this sort of thing, it's easy to delegitimize that. But I think having students present there and having students kind of mirroring the tactics of some of those violent events, um, but in a, in a slightly less violent way, like when they occupied the Ministry of Education, um, that helps kind of legitimize what's going on because students, again, using this idea of translation can kind of translate it into a way that's a little bit more approachable and seems a little bit less radical. Right, right. And what about, I remember at the time, I think it was probably, you know, December uh, 2013, there is some impression that because you have such a large student contingent protesting that the academic calendar would take hold and that would kind of, uh, you know, facilitate the melting away of student activism. What about this, the tie to the university and to the academic calendar? Because, you know, I know from, say, student activism in the United States, when school's not in session, things kind of shut down. So that's that's a an interesting part of the story because I I referenced these these protests against higher education legislation in the late two thousands and several of those did happen during the student vacation which was why the Rada thought they could get away with passing these things uh, and so that's another instance that that students I, I feel like had this sense of being able to mobilize like you know around just totally outside of the academic calendar but interestingly. I think the administrations were um, largely trying to enforce that academic calendar, like, okay, it's time to be in class now. Um, they, in, in January especially, they became really, you know, um, even administrations that sort of, that supported Maidan, like at Kiev Mohila Academy, um, the the students at, after the the dictatorship laws were passed in January, the students organized a strike and they centered it at Kiev Mohila Academy. And the rector, which at the time was Sadiq Feet, actually shut down the university in order to, to get them to leave. Um, and originally the idea was that they were all going to go back to school and, and it wouldn't be a big deal. But the students occupied the building and, and said, don't go to class. You need to be in the streets. And students at that university supported it. Um, and and had kind of, I, I think, uh, gotten a little frustrated with the administrations who had started out by threatening to um, take away students' scholarships if they participated on Maidan, had to retract that position, begrudgingly supported student participation on Maidan until they realized that the students actually kind of had more weight than they did. Um, and because it was so widespread 
you know, widely supported by, by students across different universities. Um, so I, I think uh, maybe that backfired for the administrations a little bit. Um, but, you know, kicking students out of Kiev Mohilo was what prompted them to gain space in the occupied Ukrainian house, which was what allowed them the platform to then decide to occupy the Ministry of Education in February. So it's possible that Feet did everyone a favor by, uh, by not really supporting the occupation of his university. Now, over the last several years, we've witnessed, you know, I think, uh, in, at least in the Western world, a resurgence of, of left politics. You know, we here are, we can think of Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and anti-austerity protests in Europe, the candidacy or the campaign of Jeremy Corbyn and, and Bernie Sanders, et cetera, et cetera. And, and where do you situate the Ukrainian left and its participation in the Maidan, and here I would also include feminism, feminists in that too, within this broader international context? Yeah, that's a, that's a question I've been grappling with myself over the past few years, because on the one hand, a lot of Ukrainians are very tapped into these movements. Um, my, I probably read more about Jeremy Corbyn in Ukrainian than I do in English, because so many people on my Facebook wall are talking about you know, are talking about these politicians um, from the Ukrainian perspective. It's not something that I would otherwise really be that interested in, I guess. Um, and the same with Bernie Sanders, you know, I was in Ukraine in, in 2016, and that's what everyone was asking me about. Can Bernie win? Can Bernie win, right? Um, so they're, they're connected in as much as they're aware. Um, I have definitely made some connections between Occupy Wall Street and the tactics used on Maidan. Uh, I was living in New York at the time of Occupy Wall Street, and so I, I did see some parallels between those two things, although the propensity toward accepting violence as, a, as an appropriate tactic on Maidan was much more substantial than on Occupy Wall Street, which was, you know, largely organized completely around nonviolence. Um, so I think that's kind of a contentious argument to make, but um, I guess the other side is that in terms of actual movement and action, it doesn't seem to me that the Ukrainian left is particularly integrated into global leftist and anti-capitalist movements. And I don't exactly know why. I'm not sure if it's more because um, many Ukrainian leftists at this point have focused on more localized campaigns. Um, for instance, you know, groups of doctors at hospitals who haven't had their salaries in a year. Um, that's a campaign that theoretically a leftist group can get involved in and possibly find some success because we're talking about people who have been disenfranchised and need more voices to kind of lift up what they're asking for. Um, I don't know if it's if it's a question of um, mobility and access in that way. You know, I mean, uh, it's it's not like the Ukrainians that I work with have come to the U.S. to work with Black Lives Matter. Not that they should necessarily, but I mean, that's a that's a kind of question. I mean, if they are never in the presence of actually sharing ideas, um, how well can they actually integrate into into global activism? Um, but it's but they're definitely you know Ukrainian leftists are definitely influenced by the conversations that are happening in global left and global anti-capitalist activism and they're 
Ukrainians are definitely inspired by those movements. Whether or not there's any kind of mutual exchange, I think, is the other question. So, you know, whether or not they can kind of contribute to that conversation is uncertain. And part of that is because some of the, you know, some of the international coverage of Maidan was that it was a, a fascist military coup. And it, it's hard to convince radical groups in the U.S. at least that they should care at all about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, because those those stereotypes are very, very prominent here. So there's a lot of um, work to be done, I think, to actually integrate them better. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is, um, you know, like you said, Ukrainian leftists, and here I'm also speaking in terms of like Russian leftists, they're far more connected and in tune with, you know, what's happening in Europe and the United States in terms of kind of left-wing activism. And the reason, a lot of the reasons why it isn't the opposite, I, for me, I think is a lot of it, not just the stereotypes that you brought up, which are, are really strong and prevalent, particularly for Ukraine, but also just there's just a language barrier, right? Like most leftists that I've encountered, at least in, in Russia and elsewhere, uh, outside of the United States or Anglophone places, they can at least read English, right? As opposed to not the other way around. <laughs> right. And... I think it's also important to to note um, in Ukraine, there's there's not necessarily a lot of um, leftist activists whose priority it is to to translate their activism for somebody else, and I don't think it should have to be. It's, it shouldn't really fall on them to tell the rest of the world about what they're doing. Uh, I guess that's that's partly our job as scholars is to find ways to recognize what they're doing and and present it in a accessible way to people who might otherwise assume that such such activists don't really exist. Right, right. No, I, I completely agree with that. I completely agree. So it's been, you know, almost three years now since the Maidan. Um, so what are some of your respondents doing today? And, and how, how do they reflect on their participation in the Maidan? It's kind of funny, because I, I went to Ukraine in 2016 in the summer, and I was there this summer in 2017 as well. Um, and when I was there in 2016, it, it felt bad. Everybody was really unhappy. Um, and then when I went back this summer, people had kind of regained some momentum. And it was really heartening to see that. Um, it seems to me that the left is a little bit more fragmented than it was before, in as much as people have picked particular issues that they're most interested in and most willing to commit themselves to. And they focused on doing as much as they can for those things. So for instance, um, one activist, uh, and and people may have heard of this before, um, but she and some friends started a sewing cooperative, which is, you know, not necessarily like a politically leftist thing to do, but the kind of projects that they work on, their focus on recycling and renewing clothing, um, that's really important. I know personally that they have feminist viewpoints and, and are radically supportive of LGBTQ activists. And, um, you know, these are sort of projects that are feasible. They're not inherently political, but the activists who are part of them are making them be political projects. And they have, as far as I can see, a fairly um, wide support for what they're doing, um, partly because they contribute, you know, for instance, um, during the Pride Parade in Kiev this past year, they they made some of the banners at their sewing co-op and that sort of thing. So they are kind of integrated into the politics that are going on, um, you know, but they also work on their own 
stuff. So there's a kind of, I don't know if I would say better, but there's a, a reasonable balance of, you know, doing something that you find fulfilling at the same time that you're using it to kind of further your political causes that that balance is maybe a little better understood now. Um, I also, I spoke to some student activists this summer who had a really kind of more pessimistic view as you know most of the student activists who were prominent on Maidan have graduated or a lot of them have moved to Europe or, or Canada or the US um, and so they're the independent student groups are kind of in a rebuilding phase and they're trying to learn from the old activists at the same time that they're trying to prioritize their own issues that they think are the most important uh, and and they're really having a hard time not only because it's really hard to to get people to give up their time for activism, but also because people are really disheartened and disappointed. And one of these activists told me, you know, we reacted, we pushed back, we saw what happened, and people are not willing to push back again because we're worse off than we were before. And and she kind of the way she framed it was that it was the response that made things get worse. That people almost see it as as their own fault for having made things worse for themselves by you know, reacting in the way that they did, which is disappointing, um, but also not that su surprising, I think, unfortunately. Um, so it's it's hard to say. Uh, some, some, some things are better and some things are worse, I think. But, you know, people are still organizing. That's good. They're still talking. They're still, uh, they're still engaged. And that's, something that's better than than total disillusionment which i think could have been what happened so and finally um i was struck by the last lines in your article on feminism in the maidan uh, that you recently published in Science, and, and you write, feminists and leftists may lo no longer occupy the same suspect location as they did when they were strongly associated with both europe and state socialism but they also have a weakening claim on the contemporary state and its representatives. Rather than bring Ukrainians closer to Europe, the Maidan protests may have alienated those who truly believe Europe represented something better than what existed. So what do you mean by this? Well, you know, we talked about what people meant by Europe and this sort of lack of agreement about what it meant. And... I think um, feminists in particular, because they were really grounded in issues of, of legislation and access and that sort of thing, did actually think that becoming part of Europe would be better for Ukrainians, especially Ukrainian women. But when they saw how other people interpreted this idea of Europe and used it to justify violence against others, used it to justify the increased marginalization of feminists and leftists, used it to suggest that Ukrainians had to have, you know, a unified voice and that no dissent would be heard, used it to re-elect a, a politician who is basically in form the same as every other politician Ukraine has ever seen, you know, it's disheartening to see something that you think would actually be better become this symbol of oppression, you know, um, in the name of what people are saying is democratic protest. Uh, I think, yeah, um, I think it's sort of discouraged a lot of people from participating in the broader political scene in Ukraine because 
they saw what the overall response to them was, and it's exhausting to be on the receiving end of violence and, and harassment just because you're trying to say that maybe Europe is not better in the way that you think it is, but is actually more complex than that, you know? there To me, it seemed reasonable to, to suggest that maybe Europe isn't perfect, but that it's still better. I mean, not perfect doesn't mean bad, it just means we should be realistic about our expectations, and being told that they were wrong, it's, that's not a, it's not encouraging, and it's, it's not gonna encourage people to get out on the streets and, and, and fight for some future that, you know, doesn't really exist. That was Emily Chanel Justice, a postdoctoral fellow in the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies at Miami University. Her most recent article is, We're Not Just Sandwiches, Europe, Nation, and Feminist Impossibilities on Ukraine's Maidan, published in the spring 2017 issue of Signs. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time. Bye.